90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, doing good. Back in the office, which is real sad, but you know, it has to happen. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it's it's always good to be back home. And we took a, a little bit of a break last week for Independence Day here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was super exciting. Uh, my neck of the woods is crazy because we live out in the country. So there was so many. And like as the 4th of July gets closer to the end of the week, so many fireworks for so many days. <laughs> yes, we had quite a few here as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we went and saw the town show, of course. But yeah. uh, it was... It was really a nice little break, and you had just uh, traveled back, and we're getting settled in. So yep. we decided to take a week, and uh, then I traveled this week. <laughs> no big surprise, John. No one cares about your travel anymore. It's just constant. <laughs> it, it seems so. Uh, but this time it was only for a couple days, but I went down to the Scientific Python conference that I go to every year. I know you love this conference, too. I do, and it's really sad because I just couldn't stay for the whole thing this time. Uh, and how much did that kill you? I mean, you were there, but you couldn't stay. That had to be rough. But I guess you can follow along online, right? Yeah, I can watch everything online, uh, but I didn't get the swag bag. <laughs> oh. Because <laughs> I was an unregistered instructor, so I had a sad little name badge. Oh, no RFID clip or anything? No. <laughs> oh, man. That's a bummer for you. I'm sorry. Well, you know, I, I need more laptop stickers. Like, yeah, no. Everyone needs those. Don't you dare. <laughs> <laughs> I came back from Colorado with one with a cat with it wearing a like a laurel of flowers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was real important. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I went down there to co-teach one of the tutorial sessions, which when I went to SciPy for the first time in, I think it was 2010, uh, I certainly never would have dreamed that (laughs) a couple years later, you know, I'd taught one last year as well, I would be teaching tutorials at this thing. Oh, I love that so much. Um, Yeah, it's so great to me when the serendipitous stuff like that happens, because it's like, and you get depressed and be like, oh, man, like, I'm not making progress, blah, blah, blah. And then you think back and say, you know what? Who knows, like, what this thing is going to turn into several years down the road. You know, this could be the coolest thing I've ever done. I'm going to look back and be like, man, that's awesome that I did that. So, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. And so I thought it would be fun to talk about some of the lessons learned teaching this and some of what we taught, because I think what we taught might be interesting and useful to our listeners and we sold out the tutorial as many of the other tutorials did wow Uh, so by my count we had about 81 people other than ourselves in the room my goodness um that's intense you and one other instructor for 89 people Yes, and then we had one of the tutorial organizers come in and was a helper that was running around just answering technical questions. People were having setup issues or syntax issues, uh, but he had never seen the material before. Oh, okay. Um, but he was a great help. So there were you know, three of us running around. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. But one person was always teaching because with that many people, when someone has a problem, you can't just stop. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. 
Oh, that's crazy. Um, so, I mean, a lot of conferences have, especially people who haven't listened to our conference shows before, you know, a lot of conferences like the big Geological Society of America conference will have the weekend before either field trips or sometimes, you know, day courses um, about specific things. You know, sometimes it's digital field mapping techniques or field safety or, you know, any number of things. So is that how SciPy has evolved? Have they always had this tutorial before? Are those the kind of things you're talking about? So the whole time that I've gone, they have. Okay. I can't speak for the history of the conference, but basically the, the first two days, so Monday and Tuesday, are tutorials. Mm-hmm. And then Wednesday, Thursday, Friday are the conference, and then Saturday and Sunday are the code sprints. Okay. All right. So without the so, code sprints, it's like an, an, any other normal conference. Right. Okay. But gotcha. the tutorials are half day, so they you have four slots to fill. Oh. So each tutorial is four hours. Oh, okay. I gotcha. Well, that's cool for people that are going. Yeah, some tutorials have like part one, part two, morning and afternoon, mm-hmm. but those are harder sells because then half of your tutorial options are gone. Right. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Okay. That's cool. I mean, is this something that you like say, hey, this is a tutorial I want to teach, or is this something they come at you and say, we'd like you to do this? Uh, it's a combination. Okay. So there is a tutorial proposal submission process. Okay. So much like any like session at any different conference that you would say, we propose that there should be this session. Okay. Right. And there are way more proposals than tutorial slots. Right. Yeah. Uh, so not all the tutorials get accepted. The one that we taught last year, which was sort of a similar theme, was very well received. So the tutorial committee sent us a message saying, we encourage you to submit some form of this. <laughs> okay. So that's the sort of invited part. Gotcha. Right. And there are... There are sort of rotating spots and then some pretty standards. Like, you're always going to need introduction to scientific plotting. Right. Always. Mm-hmm. And that's almost like a, a gen ed in the sense of like, okay, who's teaching intro to Matplotlib this year? Ah, gotcha. All right. Uh, not because people hate it, just because it's a big job and it yeah. has to rotate. Right. Yeah, exactly. But there's also a lot of, oh, this is a cool new package and lots of people are starting to use it, so we should have a tutorial on it type sessions. Yep, that makes sense. Uh, All the tutorials are filmed and online for free. They're not quite up as of the recording of this podcast, but I would expect them to be up within a week. Wow, really? They're all free? All free. No kidding. What What are they recording? Do they record the instructor? Is it just like the instructor's screen or both and then they switch so normally it's the instructor as a small picture in the corner of the screen but then when you're talking or writing on the board and not using the screen they switch to full screen of the instructor wow okay they're very well produced that is awesome because i was looking at this list and there are some of these that i'm like oh i would totally like to listen to this so that makes me super excited Yes, and I don't know about all the other instructors. I always tag a version of the material that we teach in any workshop, Mm -hmm. meaning that even though I'm going to continue to change and evolve and improve the material, there's always going to be a 
what's called a tag in GitHub, where you could go and click, you know, SciPy 2019 and get the exact material that is taught in that video. Okay, gotcha. Granted, I would recommend getting the more updated material, but it might be slightly out of sync with the video. So if you want to get that exact material, you can. That's awesome. Okay. I'm assuming that, yeah, that's probably not just you that does that. Yeah, I know several other do. I I know it's not a requirement, but I would imagine most, if not all, do. So I see yours is tagged on here as intermediate, which we were talking about before we started recording, you know, what's expected of these things. Um, but it's like there's a lot of beginner stuff, too. So that's kind of nice as well. It looks like a good mix of man, I'm really scared to go to this conference because I don't know much about it. And it seems like you're still pretty welcome there. Oh, absolutely. There are a lot of people. We even had somebody in our tutorial that said, this is my first day using Python. <laughs> and you said, and, this is intermediate. <laughs> you know, we said, well, you might not get as much out of this mm-hmm. yeah, as you would later, but we're so glad you're here. That's cool. So... Unfortunately, in such a compressed time span with so many students and so few instructors, we don't really have the time to go around and really help the beginners get going uh, when they get stuck. So we try to do our best, but that's why it's listed as intermediate, because there's just not enough time to make sure everybody's unstuck before we move on. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. And so I would say they've got most beginner tutorials, then some intermediate, and then few advanced. It's kind of a taper. Gotcha. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I do see on here that I have to point out that one of the sponsors of this stuff that's scrolling across the bottom of the screen is PyLadies, which I don't know. It's spelled like Pilates, which is hilarious. (laughs) And it's an international mentorship group of women who code. And that's really funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, unfortunately, you know, like, like you said, I'm not going to get to see all the talks, but I have jotted down which ones I would want to go see if I were there, and I will watch them online. God, that's awesome. That's uh, <laughs> you know, they make great iPad viewing when you're trying to go to sleep and just want to listen to something, or you're eating lunch and need something to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. I guess first off, I want to talk about some of the, how it was teaching to 81 people. Because <laughs> uh, last year, I don't think we had that many. And that material, so both years, we've had a chance to trial the material once on a smaller group. Okay. Before coming Oh, here. before you went. Okay. Mm-hmm. But, so what we taught was software testing, which we'll get into more about what that is. But we needed some software to test. So I wrote a little sample library that pulled down some basic weather observation data and made a plot of it, which we would call a meteogram. Right. So it's like a 24-hour plot of temperature, humidity, wind, speed and direction, and pressure. Pretty standard, standard graphical stuff if you visit a weather service page. Right. Okay. So... Therein was an error in making this somewhat tied to a domain. I thought having a more real example was nice, and some people agreed with me. Uh, There were also a shocking number of people that 
have never really thought about weather observation. Wow. That always really surprises me. <laughs> right. But those and, are the people that go to the Weather Channel for their weather. So there you go. Right. And, you know, it shouldn't, if you really decouple from the problem, right, and you're like, well, these are just numbers and I'm trying to make a plot of them and test that it works. Mm-hmm. Then it's okay, but it's hard to decouple from when I'm standing up there talking about, you know, well, I picked this case because a front comes through and it's interesting. Right. Yeah. So. Also, decoupling, was, that was a pretty good boundary layer joke there, <laughs> yeah. but go ahead. <laughs> so I think trying to teach to an audience who we had everybody from data scientists to biologists to oceanographers to meds to people in the energy industry in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's going to have to be a more abstract example. But my gosh, like, it's just, it's weather data. Like, that seems, I get what you're saying, but it seems so intuitive to me to talk about those things, you know? Me too, but it was... I'm not going to say it was overwhelming in the feedback, but there was definitely a small signal present in the feedback of can the weather examples. Wow. Mm, okay. Well, there you go. Uh, Something you wouldn't have thought of and probably have never had feedback like before, right? Right. Because we normally teach to meteorologists. Right. <laughs> <laughs> huh. That's real interesting. Okay. And I mean, sci-fi uh, is scientific Python, so you wouldn't think it would be that foreign to people. But I mean, I guess so. I guess if there were some biology examples, you know, you'd be lost. Right. Well, and as the, the person that was co-teaching with me pointed out, like, what's the point that we're trying to get across? We're trying to get across how to test software. Mm-hmm. So, okay, let's remove as much as we can. That's getting in the way of that. Okay. Um. So, for example, one of the things, uh, I had actually just written this piece of software and I had had to write tests for it to prove to myself that it worked because I did not get it right the first time. Oh, mm-hmm. Uh, is a scheduler. Okay. So something like, um, this store opens at this time and closes at this time and we want to have a scheduler update their website or turn on a security system or whatever, something that deals with these times. Well, all computers run in UTC, right? Right. Uh, So the first time that I made this scheduler, I put the open and close times as local time Mm -hmm. in a table that said, okay, if the day is Monday, here's the open close time. If the day is Tuesday, here's the open close time. And then my code said, what time is it now? Go get the open close times for that day. Are we between those times? And it added the appropriate offset for UTC. Okay. Do you see the problem? Um, does it have to do with the open and close times that are reported? No? Sort of. So if is very possible depending on your offset from UTC to mm-hmm. open on one day in UTC <laughs> and close on the next day in UTC. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so you end up pulling the wrong set of times. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay. Be- because suddenly you're pulling Tuesday's hours when it's still Monday local time. Right. Okay. Yep. 
so it's not hard once you realize that, but I guarantee you 80% of people will code that wrong the first time they try it, just like I did. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And that's one of those things where I knew there was a chance of getting it wrong, so I wrote a bunch of tests. Ah, okay. And when they failed, I was like, yep, I got it wrong. (laughs) And then once I improved the code and the test started passing, I said, okay, now I know it's right. I can prove it is right. Uh, So that's an example uh, that we're thinking of doing. Uh, Some very basic data plotting that is just going to be like an XYZ time series. Numbers of books checked out from a library over something. Hmm. I'm just trying to think of like what would be a thing that wouldn't offend people and be like, this is too, you know. I really want to do a seismogram, but I know that I would get the same feedback. No, yeah, you shouldn't do that. definitely that's even worse than it's even worse than weather data probably yeah so i'm not sure like maybe plotting the energy consumption of my house over time Mm -hmm. something god Um, knows everything in your life is on the internet right so right (laughs) (laughs) so those would be real world examples (laughs) and then there's also some ones like a moving average that it has some tricky things in it yeah that you could implement incorrectly Uh, the other thing that was hard is you had the code that you were testing that you were writing then you had the test code and then you had a terminal those are three separate windows how do I make changes in one save and then switch to the other without losing people Because though I would state, I'm in this file, and I'm making this change, save, and now we're going to switch to terminal, there are slower typers out there. Oh, yeah, and that's, you're talking about losing people in a group of 20, so multiply that, you know, times four. Right. Yeah, how many people are you going to lose then? So our presentation format could use some work, and I think we've got a solution to that for next time mm-hmm. where we've got a way that we're going to be able to have all three things always visible. Oh, okay. All uh, right. And we just have to limit the amount that we're showing in each. Okay. That would be nice. Yeah. Cause it just takes one errant comment to your neighbor before you're behind. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and in this, this was sort of like, you know, uh, mid-level calculus right the next thing built on this right yeah so you gotta have it done (laughs) so we had too much of that that's why we're sort of going to split it up instead of one big problem we're going to split it into these three sub problems okay that's nice so if you get totally lost on one you can you won't yeah uh won't be totally gone gotcha Uh, the other thing was some people are going to be more advanced than intermediate They are going to finish the problem sets in five minutes for a 15 or 20 minute exercise block. Uh And they are going to get bored. (laughs) Bored students are not happy students. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So what we're going to try is having the problem and then having a series of bonuses that go from slightly harder than the problem to 
professional software developer plus 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 level. Mm, okay. So a series of more challenging bonuses, maybe two or three after each question to keep everyone busy for the whole exercise time, hopefully. That's really a cool idea. I don't know if I've ever been a part of something that does that. Like it's always, it always seems like somebody facilitates that personally or something, but that would be super cool if you're just like, oh, I can't deal with this person that can't get signed in. I'm just going to work ahead. Yeah, and we won't probably go over the solutions to the bonuses, but we will provide them. Yeah, I like that. That's a really cool idea. So I really want to see how that works. Yeah, I would be very interested in that because I, like I said, I've never experienced that, but I definitely have experienced like checking out because it grinds to a halt because of like one person or two people. Yeah. So, because that does stink. Uh, So two more things. One that I loved was normally when I go on about things like software testing, people say, Quit philosophizing and write code. <laughs> because everyone knows I have strong opinions on things. <laughs> you? No way. <laughs> and in this case, we actually had a lot of notes that said, we really want to know more about testing philosophy. <laughs> and you were like, no, like, come back. I can do this. <laughs> When would you test? What would you not test something? How many tests are too many? How many tests are too few? I mean, questions that have no answer, but right. things that I sort of have feelings on, mm-hmm. um, as well as just some ideas about things like test-driven development. That's super cool. That's Granted, nice. this is a group of very friendly learners in general. Yeah. Yeah. But this still. is not somebody that's battling to hang on to Excel for dear life. Oh, man. You're such a hater. <laughs> such a hater. <laughs> um, the other thing that we really had problems with, and I don't know of the right answer, is, man, setup killed the first 30 minutes. Wow, still? Really? And we had sent the directions out multiple yeah. times. Yeah, exactly. And it's sort of the homework to get set up, message us if you have problems. Mm-hmm. Nobody messaged us, but probably 30% of the class came in without their environment set up. 30%? I get it. Ugh. You're busy, and then suddenly you're at the conference, and it's the first tutorial. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> See, this is where I would be angry right away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can totally see how it happens, but a lot of people got frustrated. They were like, I yeah. did the homework. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And we're wasting time here. Yep. Um, so I think what we might try is, one, having like a fallback online server that they can work on. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So if they come in not set up, we can say, here, log into this. Yeah, that's a good idea. They lose the advantages of working on their machine. Yeah, well, they should have done the homework. Yeah, uh, providing a test script that basically says, if you can run this and everything says it's okay, you're set. Oh, if you nice. can't, email us. Like, at the end of the test script, either it will say in green, like, you're all okay, or it will say in red, like, error, 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 email, and then john at lehmangeophysical.com. Yeah. 
because I've noticed some people would go through our setup instructions and say, but I did it. And I would see that they didn't have any of the things set up that were supposed to be. Mm. They would enter the commands and run them, but the commands aired out, but nobody ever bothered to read the output. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, the other idea was having like two hours that will be available the night before. Saying like, we're sitting at a table with a pitcher of beer. If your laptop doesn't work, come down and we'll get it figured out. But at eight o'clock in the morning, with or without you, <laughs> we're rolling out of the station. Um, that seems like above and beyond, but I would be real happy about that. And I mean, well, I mean you're going to be sitting at a table drinking beer anyway. So Yeah. And I mean, I want people to learn. Right. That's the whole point of teaching. <laughs> yes. Well, it, some people don't get that, but yes, you're correct. <laughs> it's, it's no fun when the people aren't, when they want to learn, but they don't have the tools ready. Correct. It's not much fun when they don't want to learn either, but this is not a conference where we generally have that problem. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, those were sort of the, the teaching takeaways that I had. That's very interesting. Um, yeah, see, I, I've never taught a class much bigger than 50. And I, you have to adjust so much. My field camp this year was 12 students. And it was such a different experience than the last eight years, you know, being there. Um, and it was so much better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was so much better. But, you know, logistically and financially, we can't always just teach to the 12 people that really want to learn, you know? Exactly. So. I mean, smaller classes are a lot more fun, though I also loved, <laughs> you know, you think, oh, well, I, I'm teaching a tutorial now. Yay. Like, <laughs> I'm at least not terrible at this. <laughs> and then one of the examples, I was like, you know, I don't really like how I did this. Mm -hmm. I can't think of a better way to do it. Mm -hmm. but this feels like a less good way to do it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, within 45 seconds, two students had provided answers that were better than mine. Oh, that's awesome. So it's like, they might not know all the testing pieces, but they have a totally different set of knowledge that I don't have. Right. And with 80 people in the room or whatever, we have 80 different sets of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Like, the amount of back and forth was much higher than in a small group. That's cool. Yeah. That is cool. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. See? And this just goes to show that, you know, teaching is 50% transferring knowledge and 50% learning more stuff yourself. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> if not... 20% transferring knowledge and 80%, uh, you know, learning more stuff yourself. <laughs> I mean, that's how you really learn something, right? It's teaching it. Yeah, it is. I always thought that was a cop-out for when teachers didn't want to, you know, do a lesson plan. But no, it's absolutely true. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so true. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, that's really cool. That's cool. I will be eager to hear about what talks that you you know, spend your lunch time on though. Cause I always really like the rundown of this, yeah. of this conference. So, so I, I briefly, I wanted to t 
touch on the content of the tutorial because I think a lot of our listeners will find it interesting. Okay. What does software testing mean to you? To me? Oh, Jesus. I don't even... You wrote some stuff and it works. (laughs) Right? Okay. So (laughs) testing is seeing if it works? Mm, Or trying to break it. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. that's, That's what it seems like. Well, I mean, that's pretty much what it is. Uh, Basically, you have code that runs and compares your code's output to what you say the output should be. Okay. And if it's not, it says there's a problem. Uses what James Grinning calls the Hollywood principle. You know, don't call us, we'll call you. (laughs) So... Nice, nice. If there's no problems, everything just keeps running happily. If there's a problem, you get a big barf of error messages. Okay. Uh, and for these test framework or for these tests to be efficient and effective, they need to be automated and fast to run. Okay. So yes, you could fire up your software, load a file you know, do all the stuff to that file that you would need to do and then say, okay, is this the same as the last time I ran it? Uh That's software testing, but that's painful. Right, yeah. Very time intensive. So this lets you basically just script that. So you type one command and at the end you get a report of, you know, 28 out of 35 tests successfully ran. Okay. I mean, are those universal things, though, or do they have to be, I mean, they have to be extremely, they have to be your software specific, right? Is there any part of software testing that is universal? Um, not other than the concepts, really. Okay. All right. So you do have to take the time once to do all that stuff. Oh, yeah. And I would say nine times out of 10, my tests are longer than the code that they're testing. Potentially by a factor of like two or three. Wow. Well, I mean, you're trying to break it, right? Well, I'm not, I mean, even there, I'm not necessarily trying to break it. I'm just saying, is it doing what it's supposed to? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, calculations are the big one for me. Right, yeah. Like, I, I read a paper. I know that this formula should give me this number out with these inputs. Does it? Gotcha. And you might say, well, of course it does. Why would it ever not? Well, we have an example in this current version of the class, uh, which I don't really think we got to, but like, it's calculating something called potential temperature. Uh-huh. And to do that, we're using something called the Exner function. So when you call potential temperature, it calls Exner function. Right. So say... You make a change to Exner function, but forget, like, you return change the units it returns. But you forget to go update potential temperature to deal with, say, millikelvin instead of kelvin. Ah, uh, okay. Your test suite would catch that. Right. You won't. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So it lets you change your software without fear of breaking things. You always know that it's at least doing what it did do. Right. That's pretty cool. 
and very important. <laughs> and I think very underutilized in science. Uh, uh, well, that was my next question was why, I mean, doesn't everyone do this? <laughs> no. I think if you write any tests, you're in the top 80% of software developers. Wow. Or, or sorry, you are in the 80th percentile. You are the top 20%. Any tests at all? Any tests. Ooh. Well, that's disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Now, other software people may, may disagree with me on that, but a lot of the kind of standard community packages that are out there that... Mm-hmm you know, do all of the coordinate rotations for a PMAG core, let's say. Hmm. Are they tested? Yeah, mine better be, but yeah. I don't know about Some are, ones. some aren't. <laughs> uh, and the ones that aren't, like, how far do you want to trust that? Yeah. Because a lot of things are... You know, the code gets handed down from an advisor to a student and then to their student. And do you trust three grad students ago not to have made a divide <laughs> by 10 instead of multiply by 10 error? Uh, I mean, most people probably do trust it. But yes, you're correct. That should not be trusted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think testing in scientific software is super important, which is why I made a workshop about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, obviously other people do, too. Yeah. Um, and sort of the hope is to be able to take this workshop to universities. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That seems like something that would be, it's definitely something that's needed. Well, let me tell you, it's hard to get people to take time out of their schedule for a learn to program workshop. It's even harder (laughs) for a now write more code to test the code that we taught you how to write Uh, workshop. This seems like it should be marketed to like companies that are you know, companies that write software. Yeah. Well, and, you know, when I took the the TDD course that James Grinning offers, like I had folks from many well-known large companies that maybe they're not software companies, but what they do relies very heavily on software. And if their software breaks, they might lose a lot of money. Right. Yeah. Um, for example, I'm working on a system right now for my business that lets me keep track of different components and different bills of materials and what I paid for the components, what their market value is, what I should be charging. Mm-hmm. Um, and then gives me go pick sheets to go make circuit boards and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want that to mess up because my inventory being off and me accidentally ordering 50,000 resistors on an automated purchase order <laughs> could be bad. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm writing tests for every step of that. Right. And there I'm writing tests not only for, I told you to do this. Did you really do that? I'm also writing tests for, I told you to do something stupid. What did you behave office? sanely? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I told you to set the inventory of something to minus a hundred. Mm-hmm. Does it better not still work if I did that? <laughs> right. Like this should break. And it should break in this way, or this should issue a warning and just set the inventory to zero or, you know, whatever you decide the behavior should be, but you've got to test it. Right. Right. So I think it's important. It's really not hard. And it's actually kind of fun. Mm-hmm. 
it seems like it ensures that you truly know what you've written. You know what I mean? Like, it's one of the... You have to really know what you did to be able to test it in this manner. And you should, but I bet a lot of people don't, you know? Yeah, it sort of reminds me of, you know, when Richard Feynman said, like, the point of science is to not fool someone and you are the easiest person to fool. <laughs> um, yeah. The the other curious thing that I hear sometimes from students in the couple times we've taught this, and we've taught sub pieces of this at different times too, was like, but I don't know what the output of my function should be. <sighs> and there are two ways to it. One is say, well, you know, if you think it's right, then you say what it's producing now is right. Right. And call uh-huh. that truth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, my other question, and sometimes if it's a weird numerical method thing, like maybe that's all you can do. But in most of the cases, I'm like, if you don't know what it should produce, you should not yeah. be writing it yet. <gasps> yes, exactly. Exactly. That's what I mean. You, it seems like this is the thing that you're like, no. I know what this should look like and this is what it should look like and see, I know everything about it because I can put it through all its paces. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm disturbed at the amount of science that does go on. That's like that. Oh yeah. (sighs) Uh, And I really, you know, I always tell people that the first step in programming is not to sit down at the computer is to sit down with a piece of paper or a whiteboard and describe the problem. Yeah. Nobody likes to hear that, though. No. But if you sit down in a terminal and start typing code because you're just forming this out in your head as you yeah, go along, it's always disaster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, testing is also, to me, one, it is, uh, as one of our helpers pointed out, that somebody that taught a tutorial on this years ago had said, it's your contract with the world. <laughs> Like, these are the cases where I'm guaranteeing that this is right. Yeah. If you do something outside these cases, good luck. Right. Uh, It's also, it's a form of documentation. Mm -hmm. And people don't realize this, but like, okay, so this library has a way to go do this fancy calculation. You don't know how to do it? Go look at the test, because guess what the tests do? They do it. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool. Right. Yeah. So it, it was kind of cool that uh, James had said, y- your code is what the program does. Your comments are why the program does it. And your tests are how the program does it. Mm, mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. That's real good. So anyway, this is this is where we get into the philosophy section (laughs) Uh, which some people wanted to hear about which was nice (laughs) yeah but i mean that's really i don't want to for listeners that don't write a lot of code i I don't want to go a lot deeper than that other than Mm -hmm. to say this is a thing and it's part of why software is hard yeah no i like it and maybe you should think about it if you're buying software from someone yeah, exactly. You know, like, oh, well, it's just one little change. It's one little change that 
was maybe several hundred lines that resulted in several thousand lines of testing and yeah. broke other things. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. I think that's pretty good. That's, I might throw that out around the office is all I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, you know, the fact that Candy Crush updated on your phone and it was a free update. If Candy Crush has a glitch every now and then, it's not a big deal. If scientific software has a glitch in certain edge cases, it can result in wrong earthquake locations, publications that have to be retracted. Yeah. Totally false conclusions. Mm-hmm. It can be dangerous. Yeah, it sure can. So, yeah, do your work, people. Yeah. So, you know, I, I mentioned that uh, we were going to help people over a pitcher of beer, uh, which did still happen uh, several times during this conference. So in tribute to that, I picked out a beer paper for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay! This is great. <laughs> this is yeah. super great. But I have to ask you if you know the reference to the title where it originates from i do not Uh okay great well i'll let you go ahead and introduce it first (laughs) so the paper is through a beer glass darkly by schaefer and zare Uh, and this is an oldie man 1991 i love it Mm -hmm. um (laughs) it's like an actual scan of the of the magazine that it was in <laughs> yeah so uh through a glass darkly is a bible quote but it's also a um a famous movie from the 60s i think and then there's been a ton of like books that are named through a glass darkly so originally a bible quote super funny <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah <laughs> And uh, I love this. This is such, I love these papers that you pick out that takes this thing and it breaks down like the first principles of the thing and it's an easy read and it makes you think that maybe fluid dynamics isn't so hard, which is a lie. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also love that. So this is in physics today. Uh, physics today, just since I've subscribed to it, which has been right at a decade now mm-hmm. has had several that I remember cover stories about beer physics. Yes. <laughs> this I, I saw this and I was like, well, I've seen this before. No, it was a different one than I was thinking. <laughs> so <yeah>. yes, <laughs> which is great. I love it. That makes me happy. <laughs> but in this paper, they really explore beer bubbles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, Which, you know, I, I read it and I thought, okay, I've got some ideas on why these things happen. And then in the first few paragraphs, they promptly said, and here's the math that why your first few ideas are wrong. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> See, and I had always heard, and so I don't know if this was from a different, maybe Physics Today article, um, you know, that you get bubbles in beer because of imperfections in the glasses. Like, that's why they happen. And I was like, oh. Okay, which is sort of the thing, because beer bubbles, like everything else, need condensation nuclei. They even say, <laughs> similar to the formation of rain clouds. Ah, ah, no, or crystals, which, you know, they could have put in there too, but that's okay. 
<laughs> Indeed, we can promote bubbling of beer by introducing artificial nucleation centers, such as grains of sugar, salt, or pepper. Ugh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and also, uh, Glazer introduced elementary particles into a bubble chamber to leave a track of nucleation centers. Uh, I thought this was pretty funny, too. And then they went even further. Well, he, yeah, did this put iron particles? <laughs> so they, they put it from a Bevatron, so a particle accelerator. Uh-huh. Right, yeah, and tried to do this. But they didn't get bubbles then. Yeah, so, you know, iron 26, about 20 yeah. million <laughs> atoms <laughs> at 600 mega electron volts uh, uh, didn't produce any increase in bubbling, which really, to me, isn't surprising. You're you're looking at CO2, which is a pretty chunky molecule. I mean, Fe26 is pretty big, it's too, pretty I guess. It's pretty big, yeah. <laughs> um, but also, like... It's also what, going really fast. What time of day did this happen? Were they like, let's put this beer in here? <laughs> You know what I mean? That's what I think. Yeah. Like, this was totally like an 11 o'clock at night or 3 a.m. thing where it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> we're doing this other experiment, but let's just put this beard here and see what happens. Someone that had beamline time had a delayed flight. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good. But, like I was saying about the glass, the imperfections in the glass provide nucleation sites, too. They do. And we've all seen when you pour beer into a glass, there are a few spots that just have this little train of bubbles coming up that look like, if you remember, also from about 1991, the bubbler lights that were on Christmas trees. (laughs) God, those were so terrifying when they broke. (laughs) So terrifying. Or my mom being like, don't get near that liquid. (laughs) Um, But yes, anyway. So you just have this little stream coming up from basically a point source. Mm -hmm. And they're coming up pretty fast. Mm -hmm. And anybody that sat there and stared at a beer glass while waiting on, you know, the third time their flight has been delayed (laughs) uh, has noticed that these go faster as they get higher in the glass and they get larger as they get higher in the glass. Mm -hmm. And this is where that whole first principles business comes in. Yeah, so what was your first reaction when they said, so why do the bubbles get bigger as they go higher in the glass? Um, I mean, it, it it's my first one was probably the like a pressure decrease, right? That's what I thought, too. It's like, well, of course, they're under because less beer. Exactly. That's why it happens. I'm hesitating because they, you know, quashed that <laughs> real fast. Yep. Uh, So that was stated in one sentence, followed by recall, however. (laughs) I'm like, ooh, okay. Uh, Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's what I would say. But they said there's not enough pressure differential in a glass of beer to do this. So the bubbles are roughly twice as large at the top as they are at the bottom, which means you would need two atmospheres of pressure at the bottom of a beer glass. And beer, alas, is not, you know, 30 times denser than water. <laughs> I mean, sometimes it feels like that, depending on the beer, but yeah. Yeah, maybe they didn't test Guinness. Exactly. No. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but so that's not what happens. So what happens? Yeah. So as these bubbles are rising, 
They themselves are condensation nuclei. And the partial pressure of CO2 in the bubble is lower than the partial pressure of CO2 in the beer. So as they're rising, CO2 is diffusing into the bubble from the beer. Right, which makes complete sense, actually. Yes. (laughs) And you're like, oh, yeah, okay. So that mystery can be somewhat explained at least with some proportionality constants Mm -hmm. like okay well it's proportional to the surface area of the bubble because that's where the co2 diffuses in Mm -hmm. and as surface area rises then our as more diffuses in the surface area goes up uh, as an r squared thing so you can do some basic calculus and get a pretty okay first order approximation of what this is going to look like uh, so did you think of the, because, you know, they talked about in here when you're looking at the bubbles and you're trying to measure them, it's hard because the glass acts as a lens. So I really hope that you've already redone this experiment or at least have the methods written out using, you know, lasers and high speed photography, right? So as I was reading this paper and talking <laughs> to my wife about it, I said, you know what this is dying for? It's dying for a rectangular beer vessel mm-hmm. where we have engineered the index of refraction of the material mm-hmm. to cancel yeah. out the beer. Yeah. And where we can control the pressure. It's a pressure vessel. Mm. Interesting. Which will become important later. But I want to vary the partial pressure at the top of the beer the of top. CO2. Yeah, exactly. And see what you can do to those bubbles. Yeah. yeah. So... Anyway, they they did this calculation and they said, well, now we need to know what the radius of the bubble really is. And since there is this lensing effect that you mentioned, they used a notched copper wire and took photos of it. Right. Which is cool. Yeah. Uh, especially because this picture looks like it's taken on a bar table. <laughs> Most definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not in a serious experimental setup. <laughs> I also love that somewhere they were quoting the number of bubbles per minute. Uh-huh. It had a plus or minus on it, uh-huh. which definitely means that more than one person yes. stared at the same <laughs> glass of beer and counted, <laughs> and then they did the stats on it. Uh-uh. Oh, that's great. <laughs> I uh, mean, there's four people at the table probably, so everybody count these things before you drink. <laughs> so then... Okay, now we figured out how they're getting bigger. Mm-hmm. So how could them getting bigger explain their velocity change? Okay, so now you have to get into the whole, you know, buoyancy and drag and all that jazz, right? You know, I probably would have said drag is negligible in this case, but it's not. I know, and that's what I would have thought too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so. Yeah, this, this kind of blew my mind a little bit. I'm not going to lie. They take it to the extreme example of suppose you drop a marble in molasses. It reaches terminal velocity instantly. Yeah. (laughs) So these are effectively marbles. Yeah. For purposes of modeling. Mm -hmm. Interacting with a somewhat viscous fluid that is a mixed state, fluid gas. And in cases where brewers add things to get increased beer head longevity. Yeah. surfactants mm-hmm. which change the surface energy of the bubbles and instead of the gas rolling around inside the bubbles creating a 
a lubrication on the outside of the bubble mm-hmm. and decoupling the boundary layer, we would say, meaning they just make right. a, a layer where the, the bubble doesn't really feel the influence of the beer. These surfactants break that down mm-hmm. and really increase the drag. Right, yeah. So that's doing the exact opposite, yeah. Uh, so they, they go through some things and they say, you know, it's really, we really can't solve this analytically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to use some experimental data. The exact quote is thus, we must rely on a large body of experimental data that is well known to fluid, the fluid dynamics community, but less well known to most beer drinkers. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And uh, they they do this empirical correction and actually get a shockingly good fit to the acceleration curve of these bubbles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'd be really excited when I uh, plotted that up for sure. I've never seen paleomagnetics data that good. Hey. <laughs> it's because it's all lies. <laughs> so fair. <laughs> Uh, so the cool thing about this one is that it it actually sort of works and i would say the combination of physics and engineering because you're doing physics and then you're also doing the and this is really hard so here's some empirical data Uh uh-huh yeah yeah but i got lost in this paper in terms of going down wiki holes (laughs) When they started talking about what happens if a bubble could get large. Yeah. Like if you had a yard of beer. Right. And so like to me, this is like opposite. It's like reverse rainfall, right? That's what it felt yeah. like when I started to think about that whole yard thing. Because then you start to get these little pancake bubbles instead of spheres. And then they start to wobble, right? You can kind of imagine this if you've watched yards of beer (laughs) you know and i'm like this is just yeah it's like reverse rainfall so it's kind of interesting well and when they wobble they go from following a straight path Mm -hmm. to following these kind of helical zigzag paths right yeah and their drag goes up dramatically when they wobble Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so now it gets deformed like i said into this little pancake thing and then it's going to break apart, you know, at some sort of instability and you destroy it. But what happens to it? Like, how is it wandering and stuff? That's, that's, yeah, I agree. I thought about this part a lot. <laughs> well, and even in a yard, you wouldn't, you would oscillate, but that would be it. Right. They yeah, say that you'd probably have to that. have like a five meter deep. Yeah. What cores bruise their spear in. Right. These giant fermenting mashtons. Right. Uh, and I, I'm just thinking about like science museum experiment stuff where you see bubbles rising up, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And so then you get you get sort of a jellyfish looking bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it gets these really cool things called Rayleigh-Taylor instabilities that yeah. you mentioned. Those are the best. <laughs> and it sounds complicated. It's a mushroom cloud. And you can so, see them in nature in all kinds of different scales. Oh, yeah. And what they really mean is it is a a density, two fluids of different density, where the light fluid is pushing the heavy fluid out of the way. 
like a black and tan. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so you say, well, the heavy fluid should be pushing the light fluid, but that doesn't always happen. Right. In the case of something like an atomic bomb, the light hot air is pushing the heavy cold air. Right. Uh, and by light, hot air, I mean really hot air. Really hot, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so you get this rapidly rising, very light thing and this very heavy, slow-responding surrounding media that produces something that cannot stay in the same form. Okay. And so it shreds itself apart in these instabilities to dissipate the energy difference. And it's so cool because it's like this happens in rocks, too. You, you form, um, like, out in the Gulf of Mexico, you've got this big salt layer, and you'll form these salt diapirs, which are these, just kind of what it sounds like, you know, these, like, salt plumes. And it's the same stuff. They get these Rayleigh um, Taylor instabilities as well. And so, same thing that forms this mushroom cloud is the same physics behind this salt dome that moves around this rock that doesn't flow like it flows. Because... Salt is lighter than rock, and it's mm -hmm. displacing the rock. Exactly. Yeah. So there you go. So I think I need to modify my beer tank slightly to be a few meters tall. <laughs> Just so we can catch all this. <laughs> Maybe only hold a pint. Oh. Ooh. Skinny. Mm, interesting. Because then you get less refraction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The path length is less. And I would love to have a camera on a rail system where we could image track a single bubble. So it yeah. would follow a bubble the whole path. Yeah, that'd be super cool. You're correct. If you could change the partial pressure, maybe you could start addressing this drag question a little bit because the pressure difference inside and outside the bubble would be less different. So the diffusion into it would be less. Mm -hmm. So you might be able to start getting estimates of terminal velocities of bubbles of different sizes. I like this. This is good. Um, someone needs to fund this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Steve, listener Steve, are you out there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, no, I, I think uh, I, I think when I get my hands on some spare plexiglass from different projects, I might start have to setting back some materials yeah. for this. I'll I'll bring the beer. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, this seems like a fun like using open CV to lock onto a bubble and track it with the camera, their stepper motor control. Yeah. Yeah. This should cool. happen. Yep. I agree. I agree. So <laughs> if you beat us to building this beer apparatus, which is very possible giving, given our uh, travel schedules for the next that few months, true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we would love to see your results or just your results of counting how many bubbles per second your nucleation site in your beer glass produces. <laughs> we would absolutely love to make a table of this. So Shannon, how can folks send that data in? Uh, well, after they check out how to use Matplotlib, send us those data tables, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can tweet them to us as well. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. Uh, swing on over to the Slack channel. I'm sure there's people that have already done it on there. <laughs> We're on the Software Underground on the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters for keeping us uh, going in beer and, you know, high-speed camera. And until <laughs> next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science.
Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding.